You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. Malachi chapter 3, verses 13 through 18 this morning. Would you pray with me to ask God to bless our time in the Word? Dear Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning. And Lord, I do recognize and realize that without you, I am nothing, Lord, and I so desperately need you. And Father, I thank you that you're so faithful, that Lord, you are so faithful to be with us and to guide us and to fill us anew with that fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit when we ask. And Father, that's my prayer today is that we uh, would be in your presence learning from the Holy Spirit that you would guide us to all the truth. And Lord Jesus, that your message would sink into our hearts today. And Father, that it wouldn't stay, Lord, as just a knowledge base within our hearts, but Lord, it would be something that we act on, something that we live out. And Father, we pray that you would do this work through the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, we've been going through the book of Malachi, verse by verse, and this morning brings us to the very last dispute of six disputes in the book of Malachi. Uh, And after this, we'll have uh, a couple more studies to go. Next Sunday, I'm excited to let you guys know that we'll have a missionary sharing with us, Steve uh, Apple from uh, Tel Aviv, Israel. That's where his mission is located. That's where his ministry is located, um, from Tel Aviv, Israel. So he'll be here sharing the word with us next Sunday. I'll be here as well, listening in. Um, I'm excited, though, every time we get a chance to have one of our missionaries come and share with us from the word. That will be... uh, Yeah, next Sunday. Sorry, I already said that about three times. Sorry. You can tell I'm nervous this morning when I start repeating myself. But here this morning in the book of Malachi, covering the sixth dispute, I want to walk through those disputes very quickly with you to remind you of what we have looked at so far. So the very first dispute, some of you might remember, it was about doubting God's love. God brought that charge against them that they were doubting his love as a father to them, that God was their father. The second dispute there was about dishonoring God's name. They were really dishonoring the name of the Lord and the way they talked and their attitudes. Then there was the disregarding of God's covenant. They were disregarding God's covenant relationship between themselves and it was reflected in the way that they were uh, treating divorce and marriage. In, in their lives. And then we came to doubting God's justice a couple weeks ago, where the, we saw that the people were doubting the justice of God, and basically that was an, an affront to God's very existence. We, we saw that, that God took that as them basically denying that He existed. And then now, or, or, and then a couple weeks ago was defrauding God's resources. Defrauding his resources, and the, and the title was, Do You Rob God? We looked at tithing and all of that sort of thing. And we come now to the sixth and last dispute in the book, covered by God's messenger, Malachi, which is despising the grace of God. Let's look here at our first point, which is speaking against the Lord. Speaking against the Lord. There were a number of people in Malachi's time that were speaking against the Lord. If you're following along in your outline, it's verses 13 through 15. Let's read those together. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God's. 
What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we will call the arrogant blessed, or now we call the arrogant blessed, evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Let's pause there for a moment this morning. The Lord starts off this dispute or this discussion. He raises the claim that the words of his people, namely some of his servants, some of those that are serving him, some of them that know him, have spoken harshly against God. Now this shows us that God has been wronged by the prideful attitude of these people. He says, these are harsh words. This is tough talk, guys. Why have you done this? Did you know that you and I can have a wrong attitude? We can, uh, we can wrong the Lord by complaining against Him with a wrong kind of a heart. There's a right way to complain to the Lord. Let me mention that. I want you to be aware that there is a right way to complain to the Lord. There's nothing wrong with pouring out our hearts to the Lord. I believe that our Father in Heaven loves to hear from us, loves to hear our hearts. Uh, but there's a right way to do that. When one's heart is, is in an earnestly desperate place, when one's heart is in a helpless state, and pouring out your heart to the Lord, kind of like Elijah did. In the story of Elijah, there was a moment in his life when he confronted the 450 prophets of Baal there in the, the Mount Carmel. And they had this amazing experience where, where Elijah tested the people. Remember that? He said, hey, if, if the Lord is God, then serve him. But if Baal is God, then by all means, let's serve him. And he, he proposed that test with the 450 prophets of Baal that they would, they would cry out to their God to send fire to consume the sacrifice. Remember, they cut up the bull and put it out there on the, on the altar. And they cried out all day long, the, the word of God says. And they were desperate for him. And, and, they were, and, and Elijah's over there, you know, sitting under the shade tree, I imagine. And he's saying, you know, where is he? Where's Baal? Is he using the restroom? You know, what's going on? And that just, of course, worked them up into a frenzy. And they began to cut themselves and scream and dance and do all the, the pagan worship things that they would do. But then we remember that, that when Elijah finally showed up and he goes, all right, let's do this. He called on God. God sent the fire. It burned not only the, the, the sacrifice, not only the stones of the altar, but it says even the dust was licked up by the flames that God sent, just absolutely proving to Israel that he was their God. And, 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 but it was after that, you know, after that huge victorious moment in the life of Elijah, that Queen Jezebel, Ahab's wife, got a hold of that information and she said, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put that man's head on my platter. I'm going to cut his head off. I'm going to kill him. I'm going to take him out. Well, when the word of that got to Elijah, he just went into a depression. He went into a deep and heavy depression. And it says he took off kind of on a, a spiritual journey, so to speak, kind of a retreat, really. And, and he got away from the whole scene. And there in, in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 10, we read this, that he said this, I have been very jealous for you. You can read along on the screen. I've been very jealous for the Lord, Elijah says. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. 
So Elijah, there's kind of complaining about the situation. But it's not really in a, in, the, in a prideful sense, is it? He's just talking to the Lord. He's sharing his heart. He's in a desperate place. He's in a broken place. And you see, that kind of conversation with the Lord is welcomed. That kind of a conversation with God is something that he's looking for in you and me. He wants us to speak with him and to pour out our hearts like Elijah did right then and there. And, 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 you know, the rest of that story is just amazing how the Lord uh, speaks to him, not through the earthquake, not through the fire or the windstorm, but he just speaks to him in a still, small voice, doesn't he? And that was what God was in. And then he just tells him, I, I love this. He goes, Elijah, what are you doing here? <laughs> what, what are you doing here? Get up, go anoint so-and-so, go anoint this person, and move on, because I'm not going to hear it. I'm not going to sit here and have a pity party with you, Elijah. It's time to do the Lord's work. And so he listens and he absorbs, but then he just, he goes, all right, now let's go. Let's move on. It's step, let's step into what the next thing is that I have for you to do. David, David is another man in the Bible who seems to do this on several occasions. He pours out his heart in the Psalms. Check out what Psalm 73 and verse 13 says. It says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. So David was in a tough place. David is in a place where he's expressing the state of his being to the Lord. And it's a tough place to be. He's, he's saying, look, it's all in vain. It's emptiness that I've kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. I've been living a godly life for nothing, basically, is what David is saying here. All day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. You know, David was feeling the effects of living for God in a society that was not godly. And, you know, we sometimes are going to feel that as well. We, we're going to come against things that, man, this just... This does not feel good. This is not fun. This is not something I'm enjoying right now. And David poured out his heart to the Lord, and that's a good place to be. There isn't anything wrong with that sort of conversation to the Lord because it's being done with the right attitude. What was David's heart? What was Elijah's heart? They were humble. They were seeking It was a raw pouring out of human emotion, and that God always understands. Okay, don't get me wrong, folks. However, what we see here in the book of Malachi, it seems that there's something amiss. The people here are speaking harsh words against the Lord in a prideful, complaining way. They're despising God's grace. And arrogantly affirming their own righteousness in the midst of their complaining. You see, the idea is, well, Lord, we return to you. We we repented and we're coming back to you, but this is how you're rewarding us? It's just getting tougher. It's just getting harder, God. And so they're looking to kind of put God over a barrel. I don't know if you've ever met a Christian that thinks that they can use the word of God to kind of put God over a barrel and make him keep his promises to them. As if God was a genie in a lamp or something that they can force to do their will. That's the idea here that these folks in Malachi, they were complaining. They They were saying, God, you're supposed to do right by us. 
hey, we're, we're doing the godly thing and repenting. Now, how come you're not doing what you said you were going to do and, and affirming our righteousness in a sense? And it, when, that, when that's done in a prideful way, that's the wrong way to do it. That's the wrong way to do it. Let's take a look at what they said as noted by Malachi there in chapter 3 and verse 14. First, we see that they, they said, serving God is vain. Hey, serving God is vain. Some of, and they, were, they felt this way in spite of living their lives in service to God. They felt that it was empty or futile to do so there in, in verse 14. Now that stands out in contrast to the attitude that Jesus had. You know, once when Jesus was traveling through the countryside on his way to Jerusalem, we read in John's gospel that he went out of his way to stop in the land of Samaria. And he actually stopped at a well outside of a village called Sychar. And he had a conversation with one woman at that well. And he ended up leading her to faith in in Jesus Christ, in the Messiah. And the disciples had left him there by the well because they were hungry and they had gone off to get food. And when they came back to that well, they were trying to get Jesus to eat. They were like, come on, Lord, take a little sustenance, a little physical sustenance. It's been a long time since you've eaten. And, and, And the Lord said to them, hey, I have food to eat that you don't know about. And the disciples, if you remember the story, they're like, what? What are you talking about? Did somebody show up and feed you a meal while we were gone? But Jesus says to them, he says, no, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. And so to Jesus, the, 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 the idea of doing the Lord's work is what fulfilled him. It, it wasn't a sense of, okay, I'm going to do the Lord's work, but only if I get a good reward. Or I'm going to do the Lord's work, but I'm going to make sure I'm keeping notes on what those guys are doing and what they're doing. And if I'm not getting as much reward as they are, then I'm out. No, Jesus says, you know, it's, it's, my, it, it's my food to do the Lord's will. It fulfills me. That's what I live for. Regardless of the reward, regardless of what's happening to those folks over there, or that ministry, or that family, hey, I got to do what the Lord is showing me to do. That was the Lord's heart towards the ministry, towards serving. You know, it would be good for us to be reminded here also of what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 58. I love this verse. It says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. I praise the Lord for that verse. <laughs> there's a lot of times when we serve the Lord that you're not going to see fruit of your ministry, are you? <laughs> you can be pouring into somebody's life on a regular basis and they can take a turn for the worse and head off and do the craziest thing and, and you're sitting there going, what? I did not tell them to do that, you know? What were they thinking, you know, kind of a thing. That's the further, I, I swear I did not counsel him to do that, you know, and, and we begin to talk about those sorts of things, but, but ministry can be a very difficult thing sometimes. Serving the Lord can be a, a very difficult place to find, you know, fruit of your labor. You know, I think of Pastor Drew. Pastor Drew's uh, uh, working with these kids here at our church, and, and it's a really special job in a lot of different ways. Because what he pours into these kids, he doesn't always get to see the results of. 
You know, sometimes it's going to be Pastor Micah who gets to harvest some of that fruit, you know? When they get up into the youth group and they're living, they're living for the Lord like a lot of these guys are right here. And it's a great thing to see. But that, that fruit of Drew pouring into their lives, their parents that are pouring into these kids' lives. And Micah's just reaping the benefits, just sitting back, reaping the benefits, you know? Hope you're counting your blessings, Micah. No, I'm just kidding. No, but, but it's like that. We, and and, and being, being a servant of the Lord, and, and there's other ways, of course. I'm not just talking about people that happen to work on staff at a church. You guys are ministers of the Lord. You guys are sharing the gospel in your workplaces. You guys are mentoring your children. You guys are doing a lot of things that you're serving the Lord in these different areas. And you're looking at you, man, where's the fruit, you know? When is this supposed to pay off? And sometimes we can forget that, hey, our labor is not in vain. The Lord is always going to remember that. Let's remember that today. In spite of how we might feel about serving the Lord, you know, we have this beautiful promise here from 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight that our work is not in vain. The second thing that they were saying here in the book of Malachi was that serving God is not profitable. There in verse 14. Serving God is not profitable, they were saying. You know, I'm reminded here of a sad story about two men who created one of our most famous modern-day superheroes. Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Anybody recognize those names? Well, way back in 1933, they were both skinny little guys with glasses. And they created the Man of Steel who would later go on to become a multi-million dollar hero named Superman. So these two little guys, they, they, they came up with this guy and they created him. Siegel and Schuster have long since passed away, dying without any of the riches that could have been theirs. Their families have no royalties today because they signed over their rights to Superman in 1938, forget this, $130. In fact, they literally spent the rest of their lives looking back and in lawsuits, trying to gain back the rights to Superman so they could make a profit from their creation. It's a sad story. But you see, sometimes we can be in the same shoes, in a sense, as Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster today when we live our lives looking for the rewards from the past. When we look back and we think, you know what, I didn't get everything I, de- I deserved from that experience or from that time, and I'm going to try to see what I can do about it. You know, that's what these Israelites were doing. As they saw the wicked around them prosper, they felt, hey, being a servant of God, it's just not worth it anymore. Living a righteous life, <laughs> fearing God, it's not worth it. And they began to compare themselves, began to say it doesn't pay to repent. It doesn't pay to turn back to God. It doesn't pay to do good. They, like the Israel, or or, or we, actually us, at times, in our Christian lives, can be like these Israelites, comparing ourselves to wicked people. Comparing ourselves to the system of the world. They seem to be prospering, but we need to ask ourselves a question. Are they really? Are they really prospering? I think we all know 
that money and wealth doesn't necessarily bring happiness. (laughs) Why would we want to compare ourselves to those kinds of people anyway? Any time that we stop comparing ourselves to Jesus and we start comparing ourselves to to worldly people and worldly standards, listen, we're going to become discontent. Really, any time that we take our eyes off of Jesus and compare ourselves even to other believers, we will begin to be discontent. We'll start to complain, especially if we think that things aren't as good as they should be. And we'll begin to say things that show that, hey, we have, we have a, a, a bad attitude concerning God's grace in our lives. The goodness and the grace of God that we have what we do. Or we'll start to condescend if we think that things are better than another person's situation. We begin to look down and say, huh, I wonder what they did begin to be like those Pharisees in the New Testament that thought that if somebody was lame or blind, it was because they had sinned. And we begin to look at people and go, hmm, I wonder what's going on in their life. I wonder why that's happening to them. And we get this condescending attitude. All of that is grieving to the heart of God. You know, I've seen a few Christians in my day that develop this dangerous kind of an attitude. And I say dangerous because in my experience... If you hold to that attitude, if you hold on to that kind of complaining or condescending attitude, it's usually a short time before you begin to fall away from the Lord. To say the least, it doesn't do them any good to hold on to this kind of a grudging attitude against the Lord, this attitude of despising God's grace. Listen, folks, today in our society, we need to be extra careful because There's just a thing built into society today. It's called entitlement. It's this idea that we're entitled. (laughs) We're entitled to something. But we need to be careful that that sense of entitlement is not turning into an attitude that is despising God's grace. This... In response now to the complaint of the people that it wasn't profitable to serve God, that it was empty and futile to repent and seek God, Malachi tells the people now a story in verses 16 to 18 about a remnant that was doing the exact opposite of those servants, those bitter servants, in that they were, instead of speaking against the Lord, they were speaking for the Lord. It's our second point this morning. They were speaking for the Lord in verses 16 to 18. Read with me. In the book of Malachi, chapter 3 says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Verse 17, I love this verse, by the way. It says, They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Notice with me here that uh, these were people who feared the Lord. The Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
So if you're looking for the definition of the fear of the Lord, well, the Bible says, hey, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you want to have wisdom in your life, you need to accumulate, you need to, you need to uh, find this fear of the Lord. You need to allow it to be cultivated in your life. The Bible also says that the fear of the Lord is to depart from iniquity. Departing from iniquity is the fear of the Lord. It's not a phobia kind of fear. The fear of the Lord is not a phobia that keeps you from being able to live out a normal life. But the fear of the Lord is a reverential awe. It's a healthy respect. It's an admission of greatness and position and majesty. You see, when we realize that we're living before God, it gives us a sense of awesomeness and majesty. And that's the fear of the Lord. It's the fear of the Lord that causes us to respect His Word and His ways. We need to pray that God would give us this fear, the fear of the Lord in our lives. You know, that's how you start to cultivate it. You actually need to ask God for it. You need to ask that God would cultivate that in your life. Notice with me, it says that the Lord was listening to them as well. Yes, the Lord was eavesdropping on their conversations. And let me just say that the NSA and the CIA and the FBI, they don't have anything on the Lord's surveillance systems, okay? The Lord always has a tape, okay? Now, the Lord listens in whenever we're talking about Him, doesn't He? Good or bad, He hears His name dropped, He's going to be listening in. So, guys, gals... Let's hope that we're not using his name in such a way that it's more likely to sound like a curse word than it is to sound like we're we're actually talking about him. But this is a great sign of someone that has the fear of the Lord in their lives. They're talking about the Lord. They're going to be a person that's going to be bringing up the Lord. Hey, this is what the Lord's doing. Or man, the Lord is awesome. This is is what's happening. This is what he's teaching me right now. A, A person that fears the Lord will be speaking of the Lord often. Speaking of remembering, take a look at what we learned that God has. He has a book of remembrance. The Lord has a book of remembrance. Now those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name, their names were written in the Lord's book of remembrance, Malachi says. Now you know when you're a guy and you're dating that special girl, and you bring her home at some point, she sits down there in, in the living room and someone, usually mom, will break out the family photo album on her phone, Right? Or, or maybe it's on the computer, the family computer. But you break that out and you begin to go through it, you know, and show all the embarrassing family photos. That's when you know you're someone special. Right, girls? Or right, guys? If you get invited into that family environment. But you're even more special when you're actually in those photos. When you actually become a part of that family memory album. That's kind of like what the Lord does here. He makes a book of remembrance by writing down their names. Now check this out. In the Hebrew culture, that is significant. A a, a person's name in the Hebrew culture was very meaningful. They would wait until about eight days had passed after the birth before they named their babies. And they would do that uh, with a lot of thought and prayer involved in it. So to have their name written down here, this is really significant. It's meaningful. It's God's memory book. And I imagine it's not for the Lord, but rather it's for us, right? 
when we get there, the Lord's going to break out his book of memories. Be like, hey, remember when you were talking about me to these folks? Remember that? That was so great. So proud of you. I think the Lord is going to be like that with us in, in, in heaven. But I want to encourage you here today by telling you what the Bible tells us. That the Lord remembers certain things about us. And, and he has a perfect memory. But first of all, we know that the Lord remembers those who fear him. We've covered that here in Malachi chapter 3, verse 16 to 18. He, he remembers those who fear him. But secondly, the Lord also remembers our tears, the Bible says. The Lord remembers our tears. You know, Psalm chapter 56, verse 8, says this. It says, you have kept count of my tossings and put my tears into, into your bottle. Are they not in your book you know, if you ever read Psalm chapter 56, it's a beautiful psalm of David just pouring out his heart to the Lord in an earnest expression of desperation. And he's crying out and he says, Lord, right in the middle of this, he says, Lord, I know you keep count of all my difficult situations. Lord, I, in fact, you have a bottle in which you are catching my tears. The Lord remembers your tears. It's a beautiful thing. Thirdly, the Lord remembers our prayers. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 8 says that, uh, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And then later on in Revelation chapter 8, those golden bowls are poured out in the presence of the Lord, and there's this incense that comes before the throne, and it says that those are the prayers of of the saints. The Lord hears and remembers our prayers. They're stored there in heaven and they're in his presence. Fourthly, the Lord does not remember one thing that's very significant and that is our sins. Praise the Lord for that. The Lord does not remember our sins. Check out Hebrews chapter 10, verses 16 to 18. It says this, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. What a beautiful thing about the new covenant. Jesus Christ's blood not only covers, it erases, it cleanses us. So that the Lord is able to go, you know what, I'm not going to remember those things about you. You know, I love to read Hebrews chapter 11 because they call it the hall of faith. And it's a story of a whole bunch of the heroes of the Old Testament. But you know what's so awesome about this story, this Hebrews chapter 11, is it doesn't record all the wicked things that they did. It doesn't mention all the sins that they had. It just mentions one thing, their faith that they were faithful to what God called them to do. And the Lord remembers that. He didn't remember all of the times that Abraham lied about Sarah not being his wife, you know. You know, he did that several times. He's like, no, she's not my wife, man. She's my sister. <laughs> and then it got him into big time trouble. And the Lord had to bail him out. But he kept doing it. But you know, you don't read about that in Hebrews chapter 11. The new covenant the sins are washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. And he chooses to remember them no more. What a beautiful thing. In contrast to that idea that serving God is empty then, God has a different perspective. You see, he has a book of remembrance. 
In fact, we realize that being a child of God is anything but emptiness. In fact, it's the most fulfilling relationship in the world. Did you notice how the Lord chooses to see the faithful remnant in verse 17? He sees them as his treasured possession. Anytime that the Lord uses personal pronouns like he does in verse 17, I get excited. I love that. When the Lord says, hey, he's, these, these ones are mine, I love that. Those who fear him, those who esteem his name, they're a special treasure to the Lord. He doesn't forget them. You know, in an ironic twist there, in verse 17, the Lord says that he will spare the remnant in the day of judgment as a man would spare his precious son. But note that the pattern that is set is that God always preserves and spares his remnant of of faithful followers. Note that. The, the, the pattern in the Old Testament is always that God is going to save or preserve, protect his faithful remnant. Okay, this is a promise to Israel. Jesus made a similar promise to the church. In John chapter 14, verses 1 to 3, he told us that he's going to come and take us to be with him, where he is. And, and, and there's a, a, the Paul, the Apostle Paul, he expounded more on that teaching of Jesus Christ in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 when he said that, hey, not everybody's going to sleep, but in the blink of an eye, God's going to take the church. He's going to rapture the church to be with him. Okay, That believing remnant. So it's, it's, it's a reflection there that we see here in the Old Testament. Applies to the church as well. Listen, now the irony though, in verse uh, 17, check this out is that God did not spare his own son, Jesus Christ. Did he? But he freely gave him for us so that we could be made righteous and become the children of God. You know, that's the Lord's way of reminding us that we can't lose sight of the end. That we are so precious to him that he provided a way to save you and to save me in spite of all of our shortcomings. It really does pay off to to have known and served the Lord. The difference will be seen in where you spend eternity. So you'll want to get that right, folks. You'll want to have that fact right in your hearts and in your minds. In closing this morning, look carefully with me at verse 18 one more time. What you see in that verse is a classic example of parallelism within the Hebrew language. They used it often, the prophets and the poets. But the Hebrew parallelism identifies the righteous with the one who serves God, while the wicked is the one who does not serve God. In other words, your faith is intricately connected with how you live and what you do. With your life. The righteous one doesn't have anything to his credit except a right relationship with God through faith. It is faith in God that produces the right relationship with God, which in turn produces service to God. It's never the other way around. It's not your service that God is looking for to make you righteous so that he'll accept you. No, it's always 
God-oriented. It starts with him. It starts with what he has done. It hinges upon God's invitation to repent and to return. And I want to give you that same invitation today. Will you repent? Will you return? By putting your faith in Jesus Christ, God's Son, whom He freely gave for you. He freely gave Him up on the cross, in your place, so that you could be given the righteousness of God and accepted into the beloved, into the family of God. Will you receive that invitation today? Will you respond? Let's pray.